0: This morning I told you that I was in a discussion with my neighbor, Steve, and I told you that Steve worked for AT&T. What I didn't tell you is one particular reason that I was talking to my neighbor, Steve, is that I was contemplating switching my internet service from Cox Communications to AT&T. Why, you ask, would I make such a decision? I know that you are sitting there with bated breath wondering why I would make such a decision? Well, the answer is that Cox started it. They send me a little notice that you've been a customer with us for a long time now, and we feel like we're not getting enough out of the relationship. We would like $25 more a month. Now, I have the spiritual gift of cheapness, and so that put my red flags up, and I called cost communication. I said, I've been a, a customer for a long time. I, I don't nearly use nearly any of the bandwidth that you give me. Uh, why in earth are you raising this price? Oh, well, Mr. Levin, technology, communications, the speed of the world today, blah, blah, blah. I said, listen to me. Now, your competitor can give me the same Internet speed and the same bandwidth for $20 less. So there's a $45 difference between what you want me to pay and what I could pay. All I'm asking you to do is keep my old price. Cox Communications apparently has not learned the lesson that it is easier to keep a customer than to spend a lot of money trying to acquire new ones. This, oh my goodness, there's a revival in the church over this topic. So. I go talk to my neighbor, Steve, who works for AT&T, and he tells me all of the advantages of AT&T fiber. Now, that conversation leads me to why I'm telling you about this tonight is because, to make this simple point, the world is getting faster and faster. And that's a wonderful thing until you realize how much it changes our expectation at how fast the world, and in our case, sometimes our expectation of God is to move. As we were talking about the advantages of the fiber optics versus old-fashioned copper, like you're from the Stone Age or something, he was saying that there, with copper it's moving at the speed of light. Literally, there's information traveling at the speed of light. You don't have to depend on... An old copper wire, and there's no latency. And I realize that there are people now who see as an advantage millimicroscopic seconds of time. They don't even realize are there, but because someone at AT&T sales department is so adept, we now have the expectation for zero latency whenever we use the Internet. And we will accept no less as the Internet comes into my house where massive amounts of information, video and audio and information from all over the world are available at a moment's notice from this device that I hold in my hand. The thing that perturbs me more than anything is that little spinning wheel buffering, buffering. Do you realize that this is a problem that our parents, that our grandparents could not even foresee? And yet for us, it is the end of the world. It's exactly four to seven seconds when the Internet goes off up here at the office that there is almost a revolt in the hallways. What's happening? Call the IT guy. No work is getting done. Because we have an expectation of. That information moves at a certain speed and we will not accept any less. The world's getting faster and faster and that's a great thing until it's not a great thing. There was a time when you had to cook your food over an open flame. Can you imagine such a time? And then we moved and we got things like ovens. And and now, you know, I even, raise your hand if you do this. Do you stand at the microwave thinking, come on, come on. Just out of habit, I never let it count all the way to zero. I stop it two seconds short. That's enough. I'm not waiting any longer. They have technology now, these these instant pots, okay, that that take the good old-fashioned slowed-down cooking of the crock pot and speed it up to our level of expectation. You see, the world's moving at a faster and faster pace, and that's a good thing until we realize... How it might not be a good thing. We have an expectation of a world that moves increasingly fast. I, I listen to podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I even can listen to my Bible on my phone. It will read it to me. And yet, I have an expectation that information moves at such a level that I am no longer sufficient with the author reading at a normal human speed. To work in an extra book or two a month, I speed it up to one and a half, two times the speed, just so I can get that information at the speed at which I want to hear it, which must make, for Brian Middleton, hearing a guy like me speak at this pace kind of difficult. By the way, just for entertainment's sake, if you enjoy listening to information, go ahead and just, just for fun, just slow it down to half speed sometime. Watch how irritated you get. The world is moving faster and faster. And that's a good thing until we realize that sometimes it creates expectations which are not a good thing at all. I don't know how you are at waiting. But it's one of the lessons of life. And in our world, we have high expectations of zero waiting. Uh, There is with your generation... A, a, a difficulty, a challenge with the millennial generation because you see a level of achievement that your parents and grandparents have achieved, what took them decades to achieve, and you leave school expecting to have that level of living right now. And life hits you with a cold, hard slap in the face and teaches you, you know what, it, it doesn't come that quickly. And of course, once you've gone through the Chick-fil-A drive through at least one time. Then every other drive through it's just like, come on, come on, this has taken four and a half minutes. I got my life to live. The world moves increasingly fast. Tonight we're going to talk about four people who had been waiting. In some cases, for most of their lives. Some of them had been waiting just for a few, for a few months. Some had been waiting decades to see the fulfillment of the promise of God but all of them were waiting on the promise of God or more personally they were waiting on this person to whom God had promised i want you to turn to luke chapter 2 as we learn a little bit about life in the slow lane with god luke chapter 2 we're going to take this section of text in three different sections starting verse 21 will be our first section if you're following along in your Bible or on your phone. I hope the Wi-Fi is good tonight. Verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time for him to to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So, Luke twenty-one, uh, Luke chapter two, twenty-one through twenty-four, tells us that this was the time for sacred sacrifice. Luke two twenty-one through twenty-four, time of sacred sacrifice, the offering that they begin here. By making To understand what hap- what's happening is a little foreign to Gentiles, so we need to back up way up to Leviticus chapter 12. If you're following along, go back to the old law, to the third book of the Bible. We get quite a bit of the law in here, and in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll catch up and sort of get a picture of why they were doing this and what this was all about. <clears throat> Your title of the heading is Purification After Childbirth. And I this is a little graphic, but this is a Sunday night crowd. You can handle it. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who, gives, who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days. To be purified from her bleeding, she must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. And then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. And when the days of purification for son or daughter are over, she is to bring the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In in this way, the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Uh, What we don't understand, and and, and we do this lesson when you're at teen camp, is the the absolute, total, unfathomable level of blood that was required under the old law. This was a covenant of blood, through blood, and by blood. Something that uh, you or I it just makes us a little bit squeamish. We don't expect to see a lot of blood. They were used to it. It was a part of their sacrificial system. It was an act of a holy covenant exodus chapter 13 verse 2 goes specifically and speaks to the consecration of the firstborn male which in this case would have been jesus now the custom was as we go back now to uh, luke was that every every male at the circumcision that was the customary time for that baby to receive his name And so they would name the child at that time. In fact, we can look at chapter one, verse I think it's 59, when we see that's exactly what happened to John. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They were going to name him after his father Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said to be said no, he is to be called John, as the angel had told them. So it was eight days after he was born, and Jesus, going back to Jesus, now was circumcised as was commanded under the old law. Interesting bit of side piece here, a side note here, is that it's on the eighth day, if you've studied any human development, that the levels of vitamin K uh, spike up and that is what allow the clotting of the blood to occur so that the circumcision doesn't isn't a wound to the child. So that's what once God designed that. Okay? Now today they can do it differently and and Put the vitamin K in early and and make the clotting happen early. But back then, waiting until the eighth day was what you needed to do. It was absolutely essential. We think about this time when Jesus enters into the covenant. This is the very first time that blood will be spilled by the Messiah in this world. And certainly not the last, as we well know. The mother was considered ceremonial. Mother Mary would have been considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days Uh, about the time she shut off her cell phone. Then, uh, one thing we notice here is that doves and pigeons is the sacrifice that they made. If we remember from Leviticus chapter 12, this tells us that Mary and Joseph were poor. They didn't have the money to afford uh, the elements of the sacrifice that were required, and so they were allowed to make a minimal sacrifice Think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, and, and I haven't thought about this before, but it, it's meant in a spiritual way and in a literal way. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. It wasn't that he just left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and became a man, even subject subjecting himself to death, even death on a cross, which is very humbling. But when he came into this world, he didn't come into a, a, a family of influence or power or clout. He was born to a, a, a poor, young, unknown couple In a very obscure farming town. That's humbling. He did that for you and I. He left the riches of heaven and became completely and totally destitute because of the call of God. The child was the fulfillment of promise. Not just to Mary and Joseph, but to others as well. Let's look at the first one. Of those, it was time for Simeon to see. Now, we go back to Luke chapter 2, and we're about verse 25 where we left off. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Simeon was patiently waiting on God's promise. In the English translation of this text, it is called the consolation of Israel. If you turn to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah speaks of this called the consoling comfort of God. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Simeon not only knew this messianic promise from Isaiah, but there was an air of expectation that from the Lord himself, he was going to see with his own two eyes the promised Messiah, the promised of all of scripture. In Luke chapter 3, earlier, just a little bit ahead of, in, of where we are, verse 15, Luke writes this, The people were ex- waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Now, they were thinking about John. And, of course, John being the character that he was, no doubt of the confusion that they thought maybe John perhaps was the Messiah. Uh, He was odd. He was was outspoken. He had no fear. He spoke of, of oracles of God and the prophecies of God with great courage. But... Even looking past John for just a second, it says the people were expectantly waiting. There was something in the air about this time. There was something that people knew and understood that they they felt that the Messiah was close. He sees the baby Jesus and he takes him into his arms. Now, can you imagine this moment, this, this moment where he cradles this young child, a newborn baby, weighing maybe... 789 pounds and he's holding him and he's looking into the eyes of God he's looking into the face of promise people get excited with oh i just dropped the baby he he people get excited with with newborn children uh you know uh, uh, grandparents when when their that first grandchild is born i mean there's just an there's it just an air of expectation, uh, a joy that lights their face up. And, and uh, the, the same is true with new parents as they expect their first child. There's just something new, something exciting about all of it. About eight years ago, October of 2010, we had moved into a house, uh, our old house. And living next door to us was a lady I've spoken about. Her name was Miss Betty, and Miss Betty is an older lady. At that time, she she and her husband lived there, and then later her husband died. And she reminded me in many ways of my grandmother. She was uh, she was is uh, humorous and full of wisdom and wit, and just had a way of of, of reducing life to simple wisdom. We moved in, I think, about July, and then along came Grace in October. And for some reason in my mind, this sticks out. Um, we had come home from the hospital with Grace, and Miss Betty came over, or she was outside or something. And she said, do we have any news? I said, yes, little Grace is here. And, the reaction is something I'll never forget. She almost jumped, which is not something Miss Betty normally did, and she threw up her arms and she said, ah, and she went inside and she went and she brought us some food and she was so excited to take little grace in her arms, as no doubt she had done many times before. There was something exciting about new life and new hope within this young child. That's just grace, okay, but this, this, uh, I'm trying to paint that picture for you so you can magnify it times about 10,000 in what Simeon must have felt as he held the baby Jesus. This is no ordinary baby. He, he responds to Mary. He says basically, I am ready to go. You have, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your Simeon understands he's been living his whole life waiting on this moment. And now as he looks into the face of this child of promise, he realizes that God is good. And that God never fails to keep his promise. Even if it's not on the timing we expect. The parents, obviously Mary and Joseph, would be blown away by this, except for the fact that they've already had a couple of angelic visits. They've already had some amazing things happen that don't normally happen when you have a, a newborn. This didn't happen in the normal way, but they know they are seeing the promise of God fulfilled. Now, Simeon gives a blessing to them, which is so beautiful. He says, This... Uh, this." Uh, but, but, but this is, For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And he goes on to say, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of, the the, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having your firstborn child and having all of this happen and then having an elderly man Look into your eyes and say, this child is someone special. And because of him, many will rise and many will fall. And many hearts will be revealed because of this child. Now, I realize parents think your child out there is special, but you were nowhere near that special, nor was your child. Isaiah chapter 8, go back to the Messianic prophet. I know we're going back and forth between Luke and Isaiah, but... Luke's seeing the fulfillment of these promises that they have been waiting on for centuries. Isaiah chapter 8, excuse me, verse 14. Verse 13, I apologize. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes people fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them Will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. And the point was, Jesus, or Simeon was saying, Your son, he's not just going to be beloved by everybody. Who he is, is going to get in the way of what a lot of people have in mind when they think of the word Messiah. Oh, they knew a Messiah was coming. In fact, they'd be tempted to make Jesus king. They, they wanted to make him king. By force. If necessary, because any guy who could do the healing that he could do, who could produce food in massive quantities, that guy would did not need to fear Caesar. That guy could easily overthrow Rome. You see, people place their expectations on Jesus, but Simeon's reminding them of who Jesus really would become to other people. Some will love him and many will hate him, but everyone will know him. And there will be a very severe, strict dividing line with Jesus. And I think the same is true today. And then he looks at Mary. And he says, a sword will pierce your own soul as well. No doubt, picturing 33 years later, when on a hill at Golgotha, as she watches her dying son gasp for air, and he will motion or look at John and say, woman, this is your son. This was a, a, a big thing, and, and maybe she didn't understand, maybe she did, I don't know. But, but Simeon got to see what God had promised. And finally, it was time for Anna to speak. Luke chapter 2, 36 through 40. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until the age of 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This older woman named Anna, she's a teacher, a prophetess of some type of God, and she joins this picture with Simeon and Mary and Joseph. She, at that time anyway, had no husband but the Lord. She never left his presence. She continually stayed within the presence of God. That meant that she worshipped, she fasted, she prayed. She was a part of, I mean, the temple worship was a part of her everyday life. And she was completely and obviously dedicated fully, completely to God. When she sees the baby Jesus, she speaks a prophetic word, to all who are looking forward, as we said, there was an expectation of this that was to come. But what they saw in that baby was perhaps not what they expected. If God was to send someone to deliver Israel, what would you expect to see? Wouldn't you expect him to see him come from maybe a military commander's family or, or someone of wealth and royalty or someone of power And clout, someone who was an influential family, perhaps you might have expected that, but God had something different in mind. They're seeing a newborn baby born to a young, obscure, poor couple from the little farming town of Bethlehem. He was certainly not what they expected, and that's okay. Because we learn from this section of Scripture, number one, that God is not limited, is not contained within the boundaries of what your expectation is. And praise God for that. And secondly, he's certainly in no way limited to when your timing says something should happen. What can we take away from this fascinating account? Uh, maybe, Maybe just to remember one thing, and that is this. It is all in God's timing. Waiting on the Lord is something I tell you to do, and you'll hear from the Word. But that is not a fool's errand. When you're waiting on the Lord, you're waiting on someone who can be trusted to deliver every time We've quoted from Isaiah enough tonight, so let me give you one more from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Well-known scripture. But those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles; They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Unlike waiting for other people, unlike waiting for your company, unlike waiting for the church, Unlike any other part of human existence, when you wait, you tend to get diminished and discouraged and depleted. But when you wait on God, the opposite happens. You trust more. You have more faith. You see him working. You're energized. You're reinvigorated. Perhaps you yourself are in a time of waiting. Maybe you're waiting, wondering... If you'll ever get to have a child. Maybe you're waiting, wondering if you'll ever get a job. Maybe you're waiting, you're wondering if you'll ever get that promotion. Maybe You're waiting, maybe you're wondering if you'll ever graduate, if you ever finish, if you ever move on to the next step. Waiting is good for us. And waiting on the things of God is even better for us. psalmist said in Psalm 27... Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage. Wait for the Lord. In the waiting, remember who you are, and more than that, remember whose you are. God is not slow in keeping His promise of some count slowness, but He's patient. His timing is not our timing. Unlike any of the other types of waiting, God's waiting on God builds hope instead of diminishing it. Romans chapter 8 will be the last scripture for tonight. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and following. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we can do that because God is reliable and dependable. We can count on him. What do we do in the meantime? Verse 26 says it clearly. In the same way, the Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, with words that, this, that, that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. As you wait, know that you have someone who helps you in the time of waiting to remind you that God's not forgotten you, to remind you that God never fails a single promise. Maybe you're waiting on God. Or tonight, maybe he is waiting on you. My question is, as we finish, do you know Jesus? Are you following Jesus? And mostly, in a world that's so fast, and speeding up continually, are you waiting upon Jesus? If you are not following Him, if you are not waiting Him, if you're not seeking Him with your whole heart, and you'd like to change that, you can do that tonight. If you have any need, I'll be down front just waiting as together we stand and sing.